Hello, everybody, and welcome to Cyber Starters. This is season one, episode two, and we've got a great show for you. If you are looking for a highly engaging and relevant discussion focused on cybersecurity entrepreneurship, covering topics from how to start a business to challenges that entrepreneurs encounter to strategies for effective problem solving, you've come to the right place, my friend. Be sure to say what's up in chat. This is a live stream, so we will be answering your questions live. This is the starting a startup episode. I'm partnered alongside my man here, Ryan Lervik. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing great. That's really great intro music too, by the way. I love it. it really oh, good. Is yeah. <laughs> I like it. Well, we've got new music for the Stinger transitions too, so we'll see how those go. Awesome. But, but listen, everybody, when starting a business, being a founder and getting started can be a wicked challenge. There's things from like securing funds to getting started to, you know, do you, do you invest in this area, go in this market? Like what problems are you solving? Our guest today who will be coming on in a little bit is Ben Johnson, and he's going to share his unique experience on how to do just that. Just wait for it. But before we get into that, Ryan, as far as like starting a startup goes, what, what's, what was one of like the experiences? Because you are a startup founder yourself. What was some of the kind of like crazy expectations or interesting things that surprised you? Oh, the, the number one thing I think to, to sort of take away is you never know where your time is actually going to go, like time allocation, like the things that come at you and what you have to accomplish right up right off the bat is sort of like, you know, it becomes a Cuisinart of time. You got five minutes here, 10 minutes there. So really, uh, I think the idea of just sort of like being clear on what your objectives are and applying the time appropriately and then, you know, setting that aside is, was, was one of the, you know, one of the less obvious things. Everybody says that, but then all of a sudden you get in and you're like, I've got 25 things to do and I've only got time to do four of them. Which four am I going to do? Right. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, it really is uh, overwhelming and time management becomes incredibly critical. And it's like one of those things that like when you look at the startup vision board or whatever, having more time isn't really on there. It's like, oh, like solve this problem, solve that problem. Um, for, for me personally, the two things that kind of jumped out as far as startup goes is one, um, and I didn't follow the traditional path. So I think I'm going to learn a lot from Ben and you today myself. But one of the things we're going to get into is targeting market segment and a problem. And for me, like a donkey, I assumed I knew what the problem was and I didn't do any market research and I just like dove in. And fortunately, the community is so wonderful that they helped me course correct pretty quickly uh, so I could make sure that I was serving um, the community and uh, the, the folks who consume uh, my services as best as I possibly could. So uh, I think there actually is a well-proven order on how to do these things. And uh, uh, deviating from them can lead to uh, some issues, if you will. I don't know, well, Ryan, thoughts on that one? Yeah, 100%. And I think just, just the idea of deciding to do it, right? <clears throat> and then picking structure and then sort of then hitting that target market. These are all things that kind of we assume, but it's really hard to actually make jump that chasm between, okay, I'm actually going to do it or I'm not going to do it. And so, you know, I think Ben will shed a lot of light on that today because largely like he's done this two full times and almost into three at this point. So it'd be great to hear his point of view on sort of like, how do you decide to do it? How do you pick co-founders? How do you target the market, as you say, and a variety of other things. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from him. Absolutely. So if you're in the audience right now, you might want to call a friend and tell them to get in here. If you are not sitting down, you may want to sit down. If you are sitting down, you might want to buckle up because we're going to be bringing on Ben Johnson. Ben is the co-founder and CTO of Obsidian Security. He has been a founder and CTO at two cybersecurity companies. Um, one you may have heard of called Carbon Black and Obsidian. He was employee number one at Kairos Tech 
He's also been the first money in as an investor for other startups and is on the board of multiple startups. So the dude's got massive practical experience and like observational experience. He got his start at the NSA, then supported teams at the NSA, the CIA, the Department of Defense, and he continues his contributions to national security as a technical advisor to the US FISA court. Guys, I hope you're excited. I am super pumped. Let's go get Ben Johnson and get him to tell us all his secrets about starting a startup. All right. Hey, Ben Johnson. How are you, man? I'm awesome. Thanks, guys. And and I agree. I heard you say the music was cool. I thought I thought it was really awesome. I'm I'm jazzed. Oh, cool. All right. Well, good. We are trying to keep both our guests and our, our viewers uh happy. So uh right on, dude. Uh we'll put plus one on the music uh on the music scoreboard here. So so Ben, I mean, amazing amounts of experience. Uh we started the show kind of with that question that Ryan and I answered about. You know, what, what was something about startups that kind of surprised you or caught you off guard at the beginning? Now, you, you, I don't even know if you're going to remember back before you understood how to crush startups, but what, what was something that jumped out to you early on is like, a, oh my goodness, I shouldn't do that again. Yeah, I think there's, uh, to your point around time management and things like that, there's, there's so many ways to waste your time. Uh, you know, I think it's also, um, startups aren't for everybody. And, and, you know, you sort of talk to people and everyone wants that you know, cool ping pong playing, like saving the world, you know, mission type of type of uh, feel from a startup. But, uh, you know, startups are a bit more realistic than that. And uh, it isn't for everyone. So I think I've learned over the years that uh, you got to find the right people that that really can, you know, serve the startup well and, and, and thrive. Well, so before we even find the right people, let's talk about like even making the decision to launch a startup. What are your thoughts on what, and, and again, remember the people in the audience, the people consuming this are either aspiring cyber entrepreneurs or active cyber entrepreneurs. So for those who are deciding whether or not to do it, what, what, what kind of uh, lessons learned do you have to share? Yeah, I think uh, one of the most important things is your life has to be ready to handle a startup. Right now, maybe you're, you're single, maybe you have, you know, six kids or somewhere in between, uh, but it's very disruptive. It's going to consume a lot of time. Uh, there will be blood, sweat, and tears, most likely. Every single startup I've been a part of has has had that. Uh, and so you have to, first of all, be ready in your life to, to take on something. And then secondly, you have to be excited about it, right? Because of what I just said around being very, basically very hard, very difficult, a lot of time management challenges, et cetera. If you're not excited about it, you're going to give up. And so I think, you know, finding something you're very passionate about, knowing that it's most likely a seven-year journey, if not longer, um, and just just getting ready for it. Yeah, that's such a critical aspect of having like your family members, your friends and your others around you to sort of support you because when you launch it, it's sort of all on you. So I uh, love that perspective. So how, how did that actually work out for you? Did you pull everybody together and say like, hey, look, I'm going to do this to have your support or was it, hey, I'm going to go and they followed like how, how did that work out? Yeah, it's uh, you, you, you do have to get, you know, your partner or, you know, if you have kids or whatever, they have to understand that like you might be working some weekends or whatever and traveling, you know, those kinds of things. We can get into all this stuff. Uh, super pumped that we have, you know, 60 minutes here. But, uh, you know, I think for a lot of us, we're very fortunate that we have skill sets that were very employable. 
And I don't mean to, you know, say that it's not hard to find a job. Of course, sometimes it's very, very hard to find a job. But when you're you have a skill set like software engineering or cyber defense or something like that, where more likely than not you will be able to find a well-paying job and feed your family, uh, I think that needs to be seen as essentially your safety net, right? And so when I was convincing my wife, like, hey, we should do this. I was like, look, if we're about to go into financial ruin, I will walk down the street and get a job, even if I hate it, to pay the bills, right? So uh, very fortunate to just be employable or have a skill set that, that can help. But then, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Ryan, to your question, it's it's about just making sure people understand like, hey, this is going to be a little bit of a wild ride, maybe a very wild ride. And, uh, you know, we're just going to have to make sure we, we stay in touch and, and figure out what's what's best for everybody. Yeah. And, and Ben, I'm kind of curious, like, so for me myself, I was kind of like dual hatted for a while before I decided to make that jump and, and go all in on the startup and, and, and run that. It, it is, it is so true how, um, you can just go get another job and, and like you have that mentally, but at the same time, I, I don't know if you've seen this or experienced it, but like, I still, it, it, it's like this major leap of faith that I feel like you have to come to terms with yourself. It's, 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 it's outrageous. Cause looking back at it, it seems so silly to, to have had that conflict. Do you see people um, experiencing that and, and could expect that same kind of challenge if they decide to go with a startup? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. You're going to fight, you know, even if you're best friends with your co-founders, and I, I know we'll maybe get to that, uh, you're probably going to get into some some shouting matches, dropping F-bombs, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, it's tough. There's a lot of pressure and you're passionate and you want to win and, you know, there's never enough time to the earlier comments. So, you know, I think I think the best thing you can do actually before you decide to do it is go join an early stage company where you're not number one or number two. You're like number five or you're number 10 in the organization, right? So that you're experiencing most of what the startup has to offer from you know almost the earliest days, but you're not ultimately responsible for everyone's paycheck, right? Or for all the fundraising and stuff. Cause you can learn so much, figure out what's winning and what's losing or, you know, sort of pros and cons, you know, good habits, bad habits, et cetera. And then, you know, maybe give them a, a good, you know, several years, few years, whatever. And then now you're ready to, to do it yourself. Oh, I love it. Well, you mentioned getting into a fight with your co-founders, um, even if they're your best friend, even if they're maybe you're married to them. Um, so let's talk about that, right? I mean, I'm sorry, Ryan, uh, Ben, how do you pick a co-founder and not just how do you pick one, but like, lessons learned, pros and cons, things to look out for, red flags, et cetera. Yeah. You, you know, I think, uh, I, I think it is, you have to see them as a, basically a, a life partner or, you know, a soulmate almost. And, and, uh, you're going to essentially be in the trenches together, you know, where things are really hard and, and, you know, maybe you're not taking salary for a while. So you're eating ramen or you're, you know, just, just getting yelled at by uh, customers or whatever it is. Right. And so you have to first and foremost, have that, that trust in each other. Uh, you know, I think secondly, um, you have to have a similar view of what the exit is. If one of you thinks this is a one-year flip and the other year, other person thinks this is a 10-year IPO journey, it's probably not going to work out super well. Like maybe you can come to some sort of agreement in the middle, but you have to have the same vision for where, where the company's going. Um, and then thirdly, uh, you have to have uh, the right skill sets, right? Um, you know, like, like with Obsidian, we were all pretty similar kind of CTO-esque types. Uh, which I think there's pros and cons to that. I think more pros than than cons. But you know, I've also seen teams that uh, you know maybe you have a, a very strong uh, sales leader who wants to you know be one of your co-founders, and and that's great. But like you might not be selling product for two or three years. 
So making sure that person can actually contribute over those first few years, right? And and so, you know, I think it's different for everyone, but I think you definitely have to start with trust and have to expect that this is going to be a very wild ride. And can you, you know, basically work together during that period? Yeah, yeah. Ben, that's such an interesting point of view. I want to tease out one thing you said about vision and alignment, because, you know, I, I love the point of view of like, hey, when you jump in, you really don't know what's going to come at you, right? You've got to have all these pieces. You've got to be ready to sort of withstand it, right? Sort of, and have the grid to go. But one of the things you mentioned, which is really critical, is sort of you have to be on the same page of what the end looks like. I mean, is there an end and when is it, right? Uh, and that, because that plays into the structure, right? Whether you're, you know, whether you set up as like a, an LLC or a C Corp or however you actually structure it, like that's going to matter what the long-term vision is. So can you say more about sort of how you make sure that vision and alignment gets lined up so that your, so that your corporate structure, if it is a corporation, uh, works out properly for, for the end result that you're looking for? Yeah, I, I, I think going back to, you know, maybe the very first question you all asked uh, when when I joined this call, this 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 broadcast was, you know, kind of maybe lessons learned or things you didn't expect. And one of the things I've, I've definitely learned is it's so much about expectation setting in every every area, whether you're hiring someone, taking money, etc. You have to set the expectations up front because if you don't, it's just it's likely you have different expectations from the other person, the other party, and it's going to cause conflict at some point. So coming back to this question, uh, if you are not discussing what does the board look like? Where do we think the board structure is going to get to? Is one of us going to get kicked off the board because you just have one you know, board seat for common shareholders or whatever? You know, you have to have those conversations. It doesn't mean it's set in stone, but at least you're having the conversation you're essentially coming to some sort of agreement, even if it's a loose agreement uh, and you're not, you know, kind of diametrically opposed. Uh, so I think it's having those conversations, you know, what kind of company, where's the headquarters, you know, how many people do we think we're going to need to hire? How are we going to raise funds, exit strategy? You know, what happens if we're running out of money? Are we going to not pay ourselves or whatever? You know, so like just doesn't mean it has to all be decided, but at least you've had the conversation. Yeah, it's like you're looking beyond the horizon and just anticipating a factor of events that could happen. I imagine that's really impactful and sort of like, or very important in terms of uh, choosing your founders and your business partners. Absolutely. Well, and it, it sounds like as you were saying it, you started off, Ben, by saying life partner. And, you know, I, I'm married and, you know, I, I would encourage other people to do this too. Like, hey, do you want to have kids? Yes or no? I mean, that's like a major decision that could end the relationship. So when, when you say these things, it's like, it resonates quite a bit. Cause I can't imagine marrying someone that, you know, wanted to live where it snows or, uh, wanted to not have kids or something like that. So, um, I think taking it with that level of seriousness, instead of like the, like 1am in Vegas at black hat being like, we should start a bar, right? Like, you know, like being, being serious about it. But, but I want to circle back on one thing that you mentioned, you said kind of picking your co-founders in obsidian. I think you said obsidian was like mostly CTO types. So again, being a total nerd, Ben, um, which you'll get to, you'll get to identify quickly that I am like when you're building like, um, like an RPG type crew, like a clan, right? Like you're going to go on a raid. You've got the tank, you got the healer, you got the, the strong one, you got the, the, the wizard that can do the magic and stuff. And they all complement each other. So you can kind of be robust and, 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 and handle situations. Is there kind of a parallel that just as a rule of thumb, like obviously Obsidian's doing great and you're all CTO type, so it can be done, but is there kind of a blueprint or a template of best practices where like you should have a money guy and a tech guy and a, you know, and a, and a saleswoman or, you know what I mean? Like any thoughts around assembling the Avengers here? <laughs> I love that. I love that analogy. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, I I think it's it's so important to think about cash and 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 you know you can only hire so many people you can only give out so many options you know all those kinds of things and and you really have a very very lean team and and actually i've come to find out that like even as you grow i, I think you should keep the teams as lean as possible and even if you get a huge fundraising round you don't just hire right but we can talk about that later um and so i think what really matters first of all we're, we're talking in general like cybersecurity startups there's lots of different flavors of what that means you know i've been very attracted to the more product based cybersecurity startup where you're selling you know a SaaS product or, or what have you software um and so if you're selling a product you really need the initial DNA of the company to have a lot of understanding for what the product should be and how it should be built and how is it going to be utilized by the, the, the customers and things like that. So I think early on, it really drives a lot of people that are either, you know, kind of product management focused or technology focused, right? Um, and then you start to supplement it. And quite frankly, you can you can usually last for quite a while with, you know, sort of a, a consultant as, uh, you know, external legal counsel or uh, accounting help or, you know, other sort of ancillary positions that, you know, you're basically either building the product or selling the product. And everyone else, while it's super important as you grow, like early on, you just can't typically afford to have like full-time staff doing some of these other roles and you're not even selling anything yet. That's why building the product is really the only thing at the beginning. So you need the right combination of DNA. I can't give you a very crisp answer, but I think just as long as everyone can figure out how they can contribute that first year or two on building the product, that's what you need to think about. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. One thing I want to tease out there because we, we talked about this with um, Derek last week, product or services. Do you think there's makes a distinction? There's schools of thought out there like, look, oh, choose one, right? Either a product and as you say, line up, make that the DNA and line up everything. So the corporate structure and the expectations and the workflow and the cost control all line up there uh, versus you know services. But trying to do both, sometimes there's an argument to say, well, now you fracture the company or some people do it the same. Do you have any experience on either one of those? You know, choose one or choose both or? Yeah, I think uh, I think you do have to to. to pick one. However, I think it's actually shifted a little bit where product companies are offering more services and services companies are trying to, you know, ship product. Uh, but I, I think in general saying, look, we are first and foremost, a product company or a services company, because a lot of it comes back to, I don't know if you're familiar with like the innovators dilemma or, or, you know, things like that, but it's like, Hey, we actually could build a product for two years and see no, you know, revenue, no, no, no bookings. Um, but maybe that's the most important thing for the growth of the company and the valuation and all the other stuff, or we can take everyone and build them at a pretty high hourly rate or, you know, sell some subscription service or something like that. That's, you know, taking people's time or consulting. And it's like, well, this is the, one of them has cash coming in. The other one doesn't. <laughs> so if you get addicted to the cash coming in, you're not going to actually spend enough time innovating the product that's going to result in the future cash. So I, I think you have to say we're a product company or a services company. You can do both, but just be very clear like what you are. Yeah. And for those, I, I literally had to Google it. So I just Googled it. So for those who are in chat who don't know the innovators dilemma, it's the dilemma that itself is the fact that though large innovators have some motivation to innovate, they also have a strong disincentive from doing so as new products will undermine their existing ones. Uh, and I think that's like a really academic way of saying like, you know, not making cash money, right? Like, <laughs> like so that's, that's Clayton Christensen, right? Yes. Yeah. 
And so I would argue for everybody out there that uh, you know can read any of Clayton Christensen's uh, things, you know they still are very fundamental and they apply today. So that's a, that's a great call out there. Nice. Uh, I'll definitely tease that a little bit later with a link for everybody. So all right. So now we're, okay. So we're talking about innovating versus selling product versus service. So Ben, let's take a step back and before we make the product, let's talk about how to do that. And this is the part that I skipped and had to like retroactively fix. But I'm I'm by no means a good businessman. Uh, how do you target a market segment or a problem and and you know and think that there's going to be a solution there to make money, right? Because at the end of the day, the business is that's what it's for. It's to to develop money and and become an asset. Yeah, I think uh, I think first and foremost, it's typically not 100, but it's typically an area that you have experienced yourself or you have you know kind of seen the need for for a product or a, a service, right? And so um, you know I think. There's no magic formula. There's no like, hey, I'm going to sit in a room and just sort of create the world's best, uh, you know, new startup or whatever. You know, maybe, maybe that happens rarely, but um, it's it comes from the field. Like it comes from either you are sitting in a cyber defense seat and you're like, man, I wish we had a product or a service that did X or Y and we'd be so much better off as a company or whatever. Um, or you're, you know, just out talking to a lot of people and, and you know, maybe in a role where you experience a lot of other people's uh, cyber defense uh, sort of needs. And that leads to an sort of aha moment of like, hey, I think there's a consistent gap here, a consistent pain point. So I think a lot of it starts with the sort of empathy or the, the sort of understanding of what are the actual pain points. And then the next part, I think that a lot of people forget, and it, it is hard to, to figure this out early on, is will someone actually pay like $100,000 for this or whatever it is, right? Maybe you're targeting small small business, so it's a you know $5,000 product or whatever, but will people actually pay for it? Because Let's be honest, no one in the world really wants to spend any dollars on cybersecurity. It's, you know, it's, they, they'd rather invest it in, in productivity or new products or R&D, right? I mean, cyber's absolutely necessary and getting more so by the day, unfortunately. But, um, you know, so will people actually pay for it? And, and, I, and I think that's where a lot of people struggle. And so for me, just to give you a quick, quick sense, um, with Carbon Black, uh, you know, there was two mics, Viscuso, Tanji, and myself. And... And we started it and, and we came from the, basically came from the, the offensive world uh, in the intelligence community. And we basically said, what would we not want to go against? And it really <laughs> led to the idea of, of EDR, continuous recording on an endpoint so that, you know, it's, it's seeing all the, the sort of bad stuff that's happening to it. Um, and then, you know, it's not just about our experience. We had plenty of world-class experience there. But then it's, again, talking to different organizations and, and you know, sort of just making sure it's not just you. It's not just your own bias, right? And then uh, I'll, be, I'll, I'll be done here in a second. But um, And then with Obsidian, like in my role at Carbon Black, I was traveling the world, 100 flights a year globally, talking to the best security teams out there and, and that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and Glenn, uh, co-founder, was, was also, you know, in a similar role at, at Silence. And we basically realized there was no one was really doing anything about SaaS applications. Like you're putting everything in Dropbox or Microsoft 365 or whatever. The security team has no idea what's going on. Now, maybe not entirely fair, but I think the market is showing it's pretty fair that people need a, a solution like that. And so really that idea came out of us basically talking to hundreds of organizations and figuring out, hey, there's a huge gap here. Of course, there's a lot of work afterwards to figure out the actual features and, and everything else. But um, you know, it comes from the field. It comes from talking to people. It comes from from experiencing the pain points yourself. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, that's getting getting the words from the customers themselves is is definitely the best way to do it. You can you can have uh, a bunch of market researchers in a room come up with ideas, but yeah, when people, if you listen, I think that's the trick, right? Active listening to people say like this is a problem or we don't have visibility or whatever. It's like, oh, that's that's an opportunity. I even I even said it. I don't know if this resonates with you, Ben, but I said it on last week's episode. Um, like once you learn to see opportunities, th there's almost endless. Like you see and hear them all the time. But it is a skill to to like have your hearing kind of tuned to to pick those things up. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll tell a uh, two quick things. First of all, uh, I'll plug the book, The Mom Test. It's okay. a short, it's a short book. It's basically like, awesome. you, 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 if you ask your mom, if your idea is good, she's going to say, of course, you know, <laughs> even if it's not. Um, and so it's, it's basically teaching you how to have those conversations with, uh, you know, just, just advisors or prospective customers or whatever, where you're not completely biasing them and stuff. It's just a great read. I've, I, I'm not connected to the book in any way other than I, I love it. And it's a short read. So, so I recommend that. The other thing too, to your point is uh, my carbon black co-founder, Mike Viscuso, he, he was saying like, Hey, have you seen the sixth sense, uh, the movie? And uh, he's like, well, instead of, instead of dead people, I see opportunities. Right. <laughs> and, and so it kind of came back to your idea, but yeah, once you get used to seeing those, you, you start to see, Hey, here's an opportunity. And also I think this opportunity could be monetized and you could have a, a team build some really innovative tech to, to solve it. So that's, that's amazing. Sorry. Just like we, for the audience, you can almost see these like three Venn diagrams and coming together and you tease it out really well. It's like, you've got the idea, right? The question is the market there. So you go out and do research and like maybe the market's there. That's like diagram two. But the third one is, will they buy it? <laughs> so, you know, I, I love the way you sort of laid that out and sort of bring them both together. But like that sweet spot is where you've got a really good idea. Your customers and you're listening to them are telling you what that looks like and they're willing to fund it because go back to Venn diagram one, you're solving a problem that they potentially don't have solved yet. So maybe there's cash available for that. So I love the way you tease that out. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And then maybe I'll just throw one more aspect to that that, that Venn diagram. I think one thing we all forget is um, when you think about competition, you tend to think only about your kind of almost apples to apples competition of, of same feature set, same type of problems you're solving, et cetera. But really, um, you know, we talked about earlier, like no one really wants to spend a lot of money on cyber, right? <laughs> or any money sometimes. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you need to, you have to have a resilient organization, a defensible organization and all that. Um, but therefore your competition is maybe headcount or your competition is spending money on a totally different part of cyber defense. And so, you know, you're not just competing against, you know, the other widget that's, you know, doing a similar thing to you. You're, you might be competing against something that's totally different. Like, you know, you're, you're an endpoint security solution and you're competing against a cloud solution or an encryption solution or employee training or the actual, like, I want to hire a deputy CISO instead of buying your product or whatever, right? So uh, I think as, as entrepreneurs, you have to think about like, how does this not only win in the particular segment in terms of value created for the customer, but it's also one of the top priorities for the overall spend of the organization. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Before Jerry jumps to the next one, it's like there used to be this old saying in um, consumer product services, right? Of like or consumer product goods where you, you knock yourself off the shelf before your competitor does. And I love that because it sort of brings in what you're saying, which is like, all right, listen, like you may be competing with uh, unintuitive other 
either products or services, depending on what you're doing, that may be out there. So you build in this resiliency where you're constantly sort of moving forward and not just relying on one product or one service that might get stale or get, you know, consumed uh, in the market by an unexpected uh, competitor. That's a really good point. So we've found the market segment. We know the solution. We hear our our uh, uh, clients and customers complaining. Uh, so we've got a million dollar solution, right? Like we are ready to solve this problem. Cloud SaaS, right? No security, no visibility. Ben, you, you, you're, you're, you're excited, you're pumped. You wake up at 4 a.m. ready to rock. How do you actually get going? Like, what, what do we do? What's step one? What's step two? Yeah, so uh, I think earlier... Uh, briefly talked about, you know, you need to kind of be ready to dive in. So I think first and foremost, when you're you're about to start this journey, um, you need to understand if it's the right time for you personally, right? It's, so, it's sort of like having a kid, um, you know, there's there's never like a perfect time, but there are definitely worse times versus, you know, not because uh, it's just so so much, uh, you know, additional energy and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and same with a startup, like, you know, maybe you're going through some life stuff and it's it's not quite the right time or whatever to, to, to do it, or, or maybe it's the, the the best time you can envision to do it. And so you need to do it now, right? And so I think um, assuming that it's the right time uh, for these other reasons, and you know, I, I, I definitely recommend having two or three co-founders. You could have more, you could, you could be solo, but I think two or three is the right number so that you're ready to go. Um, you know, first you need to create a company. I, I would recommend a C corporation. You need to have legal help. Um, you know, you gotta just get off to the right foot there, but then you gotta start, um, you know, figuring out like, just making decisions. You got to get comfortable making decisions. You might be in a role that uh, previously you're not used to making decisions at a large company or whatever, but you're going to be picking healthcare plans. You're going to be picking like, how do we pay people? You're going to be picking what's the programming languages? What's the, you know, we're using AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, whatever, right? So it's it's really about making a lot of rapid decisions because most of those you can unwind, you can reverse later. So it's more about speed and just just getting some momentum. And then you got to start figuring out, okay, who's who owns what? Because you might have you know, similar uh, skill sets. So who owns what? Who's going to really start to try to build out some, you know, sort of uh, customer, you know, feedback uh, team or, you know, sort of group who's going to be really driving engineering, you know, these kinds of things. So um, I think it's, it's really about that. And then, of course, we haven't really talked about it yet, but like, are you doing this on the side? Are you doing this full time? If you're doing it full time, are you doing it for free? Are you bootstrapping with your own sort of cash you've saved up? Are you trying to raise money, which we can talk about all this stuff, but you know, all these things have to come together. But ultimately, it's kind of like you just have a blank sheet of paper. And you just got to start free writing, you just got to start doing stuff, right? Because so many people are like, well, what's next? It's like, well, just take the next step. What's the very mm -hmm. next step you have to do? You don't have to do all a thousand steps today, but you have to take at least one or at least three or something like that. So happy to talk mm -hmm. much more about that. But it's like, you got to just 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 move forward. Yeah, getting started is so the forward momentum is so important as you suggest. One of the things I want to pull out because we get this question a lot, which is in your corporate structure, you mentioned sort of you'd recommend a, a C corp. So for those listening, this is your tax filing and your corporate structure around, around like you know S corp, C corp, or others. Why a C corp? What 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 do you think are the benefits there that might help others? Yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll sort of add the obligatory like I'm not a yeah. lawyer, I'm not a legal counsel, um, but you know I, I think typically it goes for all of us, by the way. So we're all we're yeah, on the same yeah. page. Disclaimer for all of us: this just, is not just, tax advice. <laughs> so so there's so many hard things about startups. The fewer um, decisions you can make, 
the better because you're going to make a million of them, right? So if you can, if you can say, look, most companies are based in Delaware in terms of their incorporation and uh, they're a C corporation in case they think about uh, giving out stock options or raising funds. It's just, it's just the, the most common way to do it because that type of corporation tends to lend itself well to things like fundraising and stuff. And then Delaware is typically very friendly to businesses. So, um, you know, again, consult professionals that are, that are in this line of work, but like, you don't want to have to worry about a whole lot of decisions and, 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 you know, sort of debates over that stuff. Just do it the way most people do it for these kinds of decisions, because your creativity, your innovation needs to be on the product or on the customer value, on the service that you're building. Right. So um, I would just say, you know, talk to a legal, you know, legal help, accounting help, et cetera. But uh, I'm guessing they're going to tell you what, what I'm saying right now. Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's so funny um, that, you know, basically the, uh, the first, how do you actually get going? None of the things had to do with anything about making the product or solving the problem. It was all like instantiating a business. And I feel like that's something that is lost on a lot of people. Cause you know, for good reason, they're all excited about, you know, clacking on a keyboard and solving, solving the world's problems and getting that money quick. But yeah, there is a, uh, there is definitely advice and guidance in setting it up correctly, building the house on a solid foundation instead of erecting a gorgeous house on a sand dune, right? So as far as paying for that, you mentioned getting funding and uh, bootstrapping it or not. When we come back from the break, Ben's going to tell us all his thoughts on how to actually raise funding and do it right, whether it's uh, Y Combinators and startups, whether it's shares, whether it's investors, angels, or bootstrapping, all those things he's going to answer when we come back from the break. 60 seconds. You chose a career in cybersecurity and you follow this podcast because you're passionate about being at the top of your field. But let's face it, not all training is created equal. Don't settle for boring training that leaves you uninspired. You deserve the best to support your dreams. At ACI Learning, our instructors are legends in the field. Our studios are state of the art. We're always on so that you can be too. We're equipped to pivot and cover every emerging trend in cybersecurity. Because in this fast paced industry, you need training that keeps up. But it's not just about the expertise. Our on-demand video training is designed to be actually fun to watch. We believe learning should be exciting, not a chore. We offer training in every major vendor and certification. ACI Learning's on it, so you can be too. And don't just take our word for it. See what others are saying on Trustpilot. Real reviews from real professionals who have experienced our offerings firsthand. Choose ACI Learning, because support for your cybersecurity career deserves nothing but the best. Shout out and again to ACI Learning, the exclusive sponsor of CyberStars. Thank you for the support. So Ben, all right, we got the idea. We did all the things that are boring and actually set the business up and talked to the lawyers and everything, but we ran out of money. Or did we? I don't know. What, what do we do to raise funds for the business? Well, I think, uh, I think what people maybe don't necessarily think about enough is that um, you're always kind of dying as a startup, right? Like, unless you're immediately profitable or, or profitable relatively quickly, like you're bleeding out, you're, you're, you're dying. And so you need cash, you need, you need money to, to, to build your stuff and, and grow. And so, um, you know, I think it's very important to figure out where that cash is coming from. Uh, you know, I think typically it's, it's really good to try to bootstrap a little bit yourself so that you're in total control 
of your essentially destiny, right? At least for a little bit. Um, you don't want to necessarily burn your life savings if you can, you know, sort of have some support from a, a VC or, or an angel investor or something like that. But, you know, like you, you, it depends on if you're kind of just starting from sort of square one, or if you've kind of put together some ideas, maybe you have a little bit of a product, a little bit of a demo, like there's different stages, right? But I think if you can, if you can figure out how to fund it from yourself or from maybe family and friends, that tends to be a good early route because um, it's it's basically you're still making all the decisions yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Now, once you think it's time to maybe get a little bit uh, more acceleration or a little bit more support, that's maybe where you start looking at you know maybe an early stage uh, fund like a seed fund from a venture capitalist. Maybe you look at some angel investors um, and they're typically writing checks anywhere from, you know, it could be 25,000 or 50,000 up to maybe a few million dollars, right? We see some crazy other numbers, but ignore those, right? So what, what you're thinking about is like, how do I fund maybe a few people to, you know, actually pay yourself something or hire a few extra engineers or something like that. Um, and it's, it's just sort of this continuous like building block on top of itself. Right. And, um, and, and you can also think about it like a relay race, like, you know, every stage is a little bit different. And some stages, all of a sudden you, you're doing really well and you're raising a hundred million dollars, which is insane, right? Uh, but early on, you're just trying to get someone to give you $50,000, right? Totally different order of magnitude. And so, um, you know, I think it really depends on your situation and your stage, but it, it really comes down to two different things, right? One is networking and one is selling. You know, a couple of things I've learned in, in <laughs> earning my scars is the term I like to use, but um, you're always selling. You are always selling. You can be the biggest geek out there, the biggest hardcore coder. You think sales is not for you. Well, if you're a leader and really if you're anybody at the company, but if you're a leader, you're selling, you're selling your vision, you're selling the opportunity for a new engineer to join or whatever. But coming back to fundraising you're selling the opportunity to partner with you and maybe own a piece of the company in, in terms of an equity investment um, because you feel like you're going to do some great stuff and that person's going to get a good return. So that's that's number one is you're always selling. Um, number two is it isn't usually like Shark Tank where you walk out as a stranger, you present some idea and people are like falling over themselves to give you money. Now, I'm sure that happens sometimes, but most of the time, and I, I don't have stats here, but I would say very, very close to 100%, you are raising money by basically dating VCs or angel investors. You're, you're sort of getting to know them, you're having lunch, you're you know, sort of whiteboarding, and it, it's a long process. It's not just like a one meeting and you get money. It's a long process, even if they maybe knew you from a previous company, because then they have to go to bat for you. They have to convince the rest of their partnership that these guys are worth you know, a few million bucks or whatever. And by the way, if you're even if you're only raising like a million dollars only, I know that's a lot of money, but, you know, in terms of venture capital, it's 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 usually not a ton of money. Um, they're having to, you know, maybe set aside more money for future growth and future rounds. So it's usually a bigger investment than, than maybe you're thinking that you're asking for. Yeah, I'd love to tease out a little bit more about number one, because this is sort of the unintuitive part that we don't always talk about, right? So maybe it's okay we tease that out here, which is your number one was, you know, you're always out there selling and then, you know, you're because what they're buying is a piece of your business. So thoughts around that side of it, because, you know, in the context here, we always hear sort of like, hey, I got all this money, I got all this money. Great, but that money comes at a cost to the business, right? There's, there's, an, there's a, 
you know, economic supply here, right? There's supply and there's demand and all inside the ownership bubble. So would love to hear your thoughts on how you make that decision in terms of how much money to go for and how much of the company or whatever the equity is to give away. Cause maybe, maybe the listeners would love to hear your point of view on that. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I think, uh, so, so a couple, couple things there. Love, love this topic. Happy to talk a lot about this. And, um, so a lot of it's guessing, right? You do try to put together a plan and spreadsheets and, and, and you know, what you think your costs are going to be and when you think you can actually get customers and how much they're going to pay for it. But early on, those are entirely based on assumptions, right? You just, you, you don't know. And um, you're trying to reduce the number of assumptions as fast as possible, like asking people through something like the mom test techniques, like how much would you pay for things and, and stuff like that. But ultimately, until the money hits your bank account, it's all still assumptions, right? And so um, what you're trying to do is say, hey, how how much do I need to get to the next, you know, talk about relay race, get to the next phase. And usually you're thinking in two year chunks, right? So like, what are my costs going to be over the next two years? And then you come up with a number, maybe it's a million dollars. And then you say, you know what, like, I'll say usually you need double what you actually think you do, <laughs> just because of random costs or random problems or whatever. So, okay, I'm going to go try to raise 2 million bucks. And then you try to say, okay, what do we think a VC is going to want in terms of ownership percentage for that amount? Or what are we willing to give up? And then you usually come to some agreement. Maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 20%, maybe it's 40%. It's usually not like the whole company you're giving away. And it's usually not like 1%, right? Um, so it's somewhere in that, that range. And you're trying to look at what other companies' valuations were that maybe were in a similar space. And, and by the way, the investors are going to always look at that. They're going to say, well, companies in this range typically are, are priced at this, this valuation and, and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I wish I could give you a very crisp answer of you, you do X, Y, and Z, and it equals, you know, profit or whatever. <laughs> but a lot of it's assumptions. A lot of it's conversations. Talk to other founders. There's some really good founder, like Slack communities where everyone like shares, like, you know, good, bad, ugly, whatever with each other around hiring, fundraising, products, marketing, whatever. And so, you know, you're, you have to constantly be seeking out, maybe this is a whole other topic, constantly be seeking out mentors, advisors, people have just gone through this before so they can help you not step in those potholes or, you know, maybe overvalue or undervalue your, your, your company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm kind of seeing the through line here as you're speaking, right? The, the early on, uh, partners that you partner with, the long-term objective, and then the funding. And those three have to all be, it sounds like they all three have to be in sync. Otherwise you can cause a lot of friction early. It sounds like. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's hard. Like, you know, I mean, people are, people are taking bets with significant amounts of money when they invest in you. And, and uh, you know, it's, and as soon as someone that has any sort of, you know, sort of credibility or pedigree invests in you. It, it is kind of like Shark Tank where now all of a sudden everyone else is like, okay, well, if they think it's worth an investment, like I'm in, right? So it is sort of a feast or famine. And it's unfortunate because it's it's very frustrating and very time consuming uh, to fundraise. But that's where, you know, you can maybe get some some help, some intros, some mentors, some, some angel investors who give you just enough cash to get another six months of progress to really win over the you know, the, the institutional investors or something like that. It's, it's all a, um, you know, it's sort of a never ending journey of, of how do I, you know, survive basically. Yeah. And when you're selling 40% of your business <laughs> for an investor, I mean, you can only do that so many times before you, you, uh, you know, you're given away 120% of your business. Uh, and one of the things that we use to hire people, incentivize them is, uh, stock options, uh, in the company. So you do have to be mindful when you're selling parts of the business to investors to keep some of that. So 
when we are hiring these early hires, Ben, what's some guidance from lessons learned that you can share with us? Yeah, I think, uh, I think first and foremost, and I say this all the time when I'm working with, you know, other startups or friends or whatever is hire slow, fire fast, because we all tend to hire fast, fire slow. What I mean by that is, um, hey, I just got enough money to hire like three engineers. Let me go find them immediately because the clock's ticking. It's like, well, yeah, the clock's sort of ticking, but like you're not spending that money yet. So <laughs> like, yeah, the clock's ticking and you need to always you know, be thinking about speed and, and that kind of thing, but like you need to get it right. And similarly, we've all had situations where, um, you know, amazing people, amazing humans, but maybe they're just not right for that role or the, the business or whatever. And you want to give them like three or four chances rather than you, you basically knew early on that they, maybe they weren't the right fit. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think when you're looking for early, early people, it's um, who, who would have, you know, maybe this is a weird analogy, but like, you know, back, back in like the 1700s or, or whatever, even 1800s, who would have been great, like going out pioneering, going on the, you know, Lewis and Clark trail or whatever, like, you don't know where you're going. You don't know what's going to happen, but you're like comfortable, you're, you're resourceful. Um, and so um, whether it's, you know, kind of oversimplification or not, um, you know, I, I had the fortunate opportunity to work with, you know, like Special Operations Command and other just very interesting organizations. And so I tend to try to take a lot of those lessons of like, how do you find the one person who's just who's just strong, right? And and strong in whatever they need to do, but it's also like self-sufficient. They're going to find a way, not find an excuse. They're going to, you know, be a team player, but like also if they're solo on a mission, they're okay for a while, right? Um, so you're you're really, you know, thinking about a lot of that. And then a lot of it's, you know, character and 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 sort of being an earnest, like hardworking person, right? So I've said a lot of things here, but I, I really do believe it comes down to sort of passion and the ability to, to you know, really be effective in very uncertain situations. And the final thing I'll say on this topic is in the intelligence community, we came up, my, my boss, Paul, came up with this uh, set of criteria that we looked for in everybody. And I've, I've tried to take that ever since, right? We looked for passion, <coughs> capacity, and humility, hmm. passion, capacity, humility. And if you went hmm. back to anyone who was on that team, we could all recite that today, like 20 years later. Oh yeah, those are the three things we look for, passion, capacity, and humility. So pick your your criteria, but I think it has to you know center around some of those, those topics. Hmm. Yeah, 100%. Like, you know, I say this all the time. Um, you can you can teach someone something, right? Someone can get a book or take a class or, you know, do, do a seminar or whatever and get a skill, but like you can't teach someone to be passionate or and if they're an arrogant prick, like you don't even want to work with them. But like, it doesn't matter if they're like, you know, number one grad at the, the finest institution. It like, you, like you said, you're, you're basically in a life relationship with them. Right. So like, it doesn't matter. Like I'm going to look past the fact I'll just go with number two. Like the second graduate is fine uh, as well. Um, one thing, so one thing that I personally have never had to do, um, is really fire someone. I mean, I've had, you know, layoffs and stuff, but like, I've never really had to fire someone. So as a, as a startup owner, of course, I only have me as an employee, so I won't even have to deal with that. But, um, I mean, is that something you got to get comfortable with? Cause I can't imagine it's, it's an enjoyable experience unless it's like downright, um, you know, a, a major conflict or something like that. So, um, I hope you don't have to get comfortable with it because that would mean you're doing it a lot. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I, I think you, you spend more time on sort of the selection process 
the hiring process, really trying to, you know, figure out like maybe you can bring someone on as a as a moonlighting consultant to sort of see how they fit. And then, you know, then they're full time. So there's different ways you can try to minimize the chance that they won't work out. Um, but then I think a lot of times it's it's maintaining communications because, you know, even if someone isn't necessarily the right fit today or isn't performing today, like maybe a little coaching, a little kick in the butt would would get them to the right place. So I'm a firm believer in, in you know, pretty frequent communication, you know, maybe early on you're doing weekly one-on-ones because there's just so much going on. Right. And then, you know, maybe it moves to two weeks or four weeks, but it has to be pretty consistent and, and, and pretty, pretty, um, you know, frequent. And then, uh, you know, I think usually it's not a total shock to the person. Like sometimes, sometimes it is unfortunately, but usually they know that they're not, you know, being effective or whatever. So I think it's like giving some, some feedback and saying, Hey, and I like the term course correction. Um, it's like, hey, we need a little bit of a course correction here. We need you to, you know, figure out how to how to do this better or whatever. Um, but you're just trying to have a good conversation and gives people a chance to to fix their behavior or their their performance. Um, and then, you know, yeah, unfortunately, you have to sometimes have that conversation and you know just make sure you're. Uh, sometimes, you know, you might have to talk to an HR person first or whatever just to make sure you're you're doing it the right way. But um, usually, if you're just talking to people, human to human, you know, person to person, then you you can get to a good place where where it's amicable. Oh, good. That's thank you. Like again, I haven't had to do it, but I'm going to file that away in my brain mm -hmm. in case I ever do need to do it. So yeah. pivoting. Oh, you go one, ahead. Yeah, one point just to tease us together, because Jerry, you mentioned it. Like if you if you it's just you and you're burning the midnight oil and you're working constantly, right? There is this element that we don't always talk about. You have to think to yourself: Would you hire yourself for the job? So this is something to put in the calculus as well sometimes. And Ben, I see you nodding your head. And Jerry, yeah, like you have to think like, would I hire me to do this? And that sometimes is a distinction between, well, maybe I should hire somebody else to do this or maybe I need to get out. So that's always just wanted to make sure we've kind of pulled that out for everybody because that's sometimes something we don't necessarily think about. So, yep, I, I love it. I love that. Yeah, and it's, it's a nice like actionable rule of thumb that you can kind of apply. I like that. So um, Ben, we and by the way, the questions in chat, we've got them all flagged. Ben's going to answer them. But before that, I just want your thoughts on early stage versus late stage. Are we always in early stage? You know, is late stage only when you got to exit? Or what, what are we talking about? What's the difference? Yeah, I think uh, I, I think to me, there's there's um, there's a period where every single person is wearing multiple hats. And it might be just one of you, two of you, you know, whoever started the company could be the first five or 10 people. But there's, uh, everyone's doing multiple things. And then there's a tremendous amount of, um, you know, uncertainty and uh, distributed decision making. Now, I hope that throughout the entire company's journey that I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, sort of democratizing decisiveness or decision making. Like I think more people should be making decisions than probably are at later stage companies. But, um, you know, I think as you grow, you start to get more structure and you start to get less uncertainty, right? So early on, it's like, hey, we need to figure out how to do this. I'm going to, you know, maybe using Jira as a ticketing system or something. I'm going to give you one ticket that says, figure out what we need to do here and then tell us how we're going to do it and then do it, right? <laughs> Whereas later stage, it's like, okay, there's going to be entire teams, maybe even entire departments to do this one thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think, as you grow, it's all about, um, and I was thinking about this beforehand, it's, you know, I think early stage is, is, is more uncertainty, less, less structure, multiple hats, um, speed, nimble is all about like, you know, just kind of how you operate. The other thing too, is I think you start to see a company move to later stage. And again, these are just like 
terms we're using. They're not necessarily a definition of like, oh, I'm a growth fund that only does series E funding or whatever, right? So we're not, I'm not, not, not talking specific technicalities here, but I think early on, there's nowhere to hide for a mediocre or a bad performer. And I think later on, we've all seen it. There's always places to hide. Like people who are just sort of coasting, not really having a, a strong impact, not really having a career trajectory. And the company is big enough or has enough sort of, um, you know, just, just, I guess, size, yeah, where, where someone can, can survive. Whereas early on, you can't survive. Everyone has to have a strong impact and be on this, this trajectory. So I think to me, that's the difference between the, the two sizes. I love it. Thank you. Like it's, it's very crystal clear and there's pros and cons to each of them, right? The agility versus the stability, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term. So Ben, we've got questions lined up from chat. We've got um, about six minutes. There's seven questions. So I don't have the ability to put a timer up here, but set a mental clock uh, and give us your best hot takes um, in 45 seconds per question, if you could. So James Driscoll, you did talk about C-Corp earlier and other things, but when starting a company, what would you advise? Sole proprietor, partnership, LLC, these type of things? I, I think if you plan on having a company where you hire employees and you have uh, you know, maybe you're giving them options and maybe you're taking a VC investment or something like that. You got to go C Corp. If you're just going to be your own company or have a few people that's maybe providing some cybersecurity consulting services or something like that, then most likely an LLC. Love it. Uh, ben asked this question. I'm going to rephrase it. He asks, what's your thoughts about the Sam Altman situation? You're open to answer that, but I would rephrase it by what are your thoughts around boards intervening with corporate structure? Well, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to comment too much on, on open AI since I don't really probably know enough or in that, that sort of company to, to truly have a strong opinion. But what I will say is, um, boards really exist to hire and fire the CEO. It's hmm. that simple. They're not trying to pull all the strings and tell you who to hire and do all these other things. Like sometimes if you've never been on a board or, or that kind of thing, like your you're thinking that the board's sort of controlling everything, but really boards, you know, they, they obviously want to help you grow and, and do all these other things. But when it comes down to more technicalities, they're really just there to make sure that the leader of the team that, you know, the, the captain of the ship is the right captain of the ship and is doing the right thing for all the shareholders. Thank you. Yeah. hundred percent. And like, that's a crystal clear takeaway. Boards are there to hire and fire a CEO. It's perfect. Um, so I'm not, again, I don't have the context of this question, but X developer is in a developing African country. Um, I, you know, what areas could it focus on? I'm thinking maybe market segment or product might've been the area we were talking. If you have some thoughts on how you might look in an international market for a market uh, uh, problem. Yeah. So I think, I think it's typically a little bit easier and I mean, no, I don't mean to make it sound like it's easy. It's all hard but it's a little bit easier if you're starting a services company where you feel like you can get an initial contract to pay you or pay your team or whatever. So you might think of trying to find a cybersecurity services need, like maybe it's incident response or uh, you know, kind of managing someone else's cybersecurity stack or whatever it is uh, where you're gonna get income more quickly just because there isn't often the same level of institutional investment that will fund a whole bunch of engineers and things like that, where you're going to have no income for two years or three years into the business. There you go. Services, uh, ex-developer. Ben wants to know your thoughts on startups failing or not receiving capital due to the tightening VC market, inflation, layoffs, all these things. What are your thoughts on that right now? 
Yeah, I mean, startups are hard and startups are meant to push the envelope and not everyone will succeed, unfortunately. I, I, I wish they could. Um, and, uh, you know, I think with the the raising interest rates, so so this is where if you've never done this before, it's and I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm the expert on all this, but like the more time you spend in this, the more you see sort of the macro economics or global impact on things. And I think, again, not an expert on uh, interest rates or things like that, but what we've seen is I can give my money as a endowment, a billion dollar endowment or whatever, I can give my money to a VC and they invest in your company and maybe in like 10 years, they get some money back. And maybe they, maybe they get a huge windfall, but maybe they get nothing. Or I can leave it in a bank now, risk-free pretty much, liquid, where I can take it out anytime I want and probably earn like five or 6%. So the raising interest rates have really changed the equation in terms of what's available because these LPs who invest in the VCs have other options to, to get a decent return. Yeah. And I guess that's all it is. It's risk versus return. And there's a lower risk with a comparable return. There you go. Uh, Justin Gold with a great question. What are your thoughts? And I know this is going to be tough for 45 seconds. What are your thoughts on making your product the best in market versus marketing it as the best in market? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sort of noise out there in cyber, which is hard on everybody, right? Uh, you go to, we're, we're maybe cybersecurity experts and we go to the, the conference show floor and we can't really even tell as experts how these products are different when we probably believe they're totally different. Um, so everyone's using the same buzzwords and what have you. Um, I think you, you need to make an amazing product that serves customer pain points and, and adds customer value. You need to support it with a great team, uh, but you also have to market it well because you can have amazing tech and if no one actually hears about it or believes in it, you're gonna fail. Now you can't just market and have no tech. So you have to find that right balance, but you need to be continuously innovating and improving so that even if you're you're maybe not the best tech day one, like maybe by day you know 500, you're now the best product and you have the best uh, reputation. Will Reed wants to know the classic business plan. How much time and energy would you spend on an actual business plan? So I think this comes back to uh, conversations with you know your co-founders or early early you know maybe family and friends or angel investors and what have you. But you know typically the business plan is not something that's like this long document anymore. It's usually like the PowerPoint deck, right? It's like it's, here's the PowerPoint deck, maybe supported by a spreadsheet that tries to calculate some of our you know burn and hires and things like that. But the the sort of older school like twenty page business plan, I think it's a great exercise to do because you're thinking through markets and competition and partners and things like that. But in terms of externally facing, it's not usually asked for that often. That's interesting. So it's really the pitch deck, right? Chris Whitlock with our final question here. Uh, the 5 a.m. mindset, seven days a week, the classic startup. Uh, he said he's seen a lot of startups running banking hours. What are your thoughts on how much to commit? I would say you're either all in or you're all out, especially as a founder. Um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't mean you have to wake up at 5 a.m., but I think what, what I found is you have to be default your business. Like you have to sort of, if you have spare time or if you can steal time, and I'll give you an example in a second, it has to go to the business. So for example, um, with Carbon Black, I was having my first kids and I was literally in the delivery room with my wife giving birth, not that minute, but like when you're sitting there and you know, the, the kid gets taken away for you know a while or whatever, like I'm coding or whatever. And same with Obsidian, like my kids are taking naps at noon on a Saturday. Okay. There's an hour right there where I don't feel bad because they're not 
looking for my time, but I'm able to throw an extra hour or two into the business. So those are just examples. Not necessarily it's the same for everybody, but like, I think you have to try to find ways to steal time to give back to the business. And yeah, if you're sitting there in front of TV at night, like have your laptop open, be working on the business as well. I love it. So, I mean, so many nuggets, you crushed that lightning round. Uh, we've been joined by the amazing Ben Johnson. Ben, I, I've loved this conversation. Ben's new company is um, Obsidian Security. I dropped a link in chat. You can go check it out. If you'd like, Ben has offered to connect with anyone here on LinkedIn. This is what his looks like. I've also dropped a link in chat for that. So uh, Ben, personally, on behalf of myself, uh, Ryan and chat like have loved this conversation and we're going to be doing multiple seasons of this. It'd be great to have you back at some future to really dive deeper into any of these topics could have been an independent show all, all into its own. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Very well done. And I love the, the platform. I love the questions. So thank you. Thank you very much. Look forward to it. Absolutely. So uh, Ryan, let's do our key takeaways. Thanks, Ben. All right, dude, that was a sick conversation, right? It was simply amazing. Like he, he literally teased out the entrepreneur's view, the whole point of view from getting started to late stage and back, right? What the market might look like, how to dissect it, how to compete in the marketplace, right? And uh, early hires, right? I loved it like hire fast, you know, um, or hire slow, fire fast, right? The other way around. Um, it really sort of covered covered everything you need to know, you know, from sort of a, a broad view of of uh, the entrepreneurial spirit and starting a business. So yeah, it was that was really rich content. Yeah, I mean, was that your key takeaway, or do you, or was that your key takeaway? Yeah, I think those are sort of my top key takeaways. I kind of jumped right there because they were so fresh in mind, right? Yeah, what, yeah. what he was talking about. Yeah, what about you? What are your? Well, I, yeah, I just didn't want to crush you if if that wasn't your takeaway. <laughs> For me, I mean, personally, you know, as a as an entrepreneur, you know, in kind of newer in my journey and not having a business background, not having been through this before, um, I personally was pulling things out both for chat, but also for myself and really, you know, deciding, like being practical about the, the progress you make and not getting kind of, I feel like it's so easy to get distracted by the way that Hollywood and the media depicts startups as like, Oh, like, you know, we got all this money and like, we're, we're in jacuzzis and like, everybody loves our product. And it's like, no, it's like, dude, like I haven't shaved in two days. I probably smell bad and I've got to get this thing out the door, you know, get it done. Cause I've got expectations, requirements, deadlines, all these things. Um, and you know, for me to hear Ben say that, you know, it's, it's for lack of a better word, it's less sexy, but, but it's, it's the reality and you have to go into these things eyes wide open, because if you make a commitment to like quit your job and go do a startup and you've made obligations to your partner, your life partner, and the people who depend on you, and you're not taking it seriously and you're not doing the work that is required you're 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 letting them down you're letting yourself down and unless you like get lucky you're going to fail and uh to me that that was a key takeaway again that was like a massive i can't believe we got all that in one hour to be honest with you that was a lot a lot of rich content and even your point of view on like it's it, you know it sounds like a large percentage of the time you're doing things that aren't necessarily what the business is built to do you know in cybersecurity as a practitioner so be prepared to set a you know a, a decent amount of your time aside to just business operations, right? Which are things that we don't normally think about. So I thought that was a really good takeaway as well. There's a lot here.
It's a great Heck yeah. yeah. Well, I hope all of you enjoyed it. If you want, we're here every single Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, eight episodes in season one. This has been episode two. Uh, it's been an absolute bomb. I, I can't wait for next week. Our guest is going to be Ian Garrett. He is the CEO and founder of Phalanx. Uh, he's been on Simply Cyber Live before. He's a wonderful um He's a wonderful individual and a really accomplished professional. And he's taken his business through Y Combinator. So I don't know if that's what we're going to get into necessarily, but he's gone through that experience of kind of like the high intensity shark tank rooms and the pitches. And uh, he's going to be bringing all that to us. So be sure to, you know, like, subscribe, all, all the YouTube things, but just come back here one o'clock next uh, week this time. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. On behalf of Ryan, I'm Jerry. This has been Cyberstarters. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. If you got value from that amazing interview, be sure to check the entire back catalog of Cyberstarters interviews for more tips on launching and the effective business operations for cybersecurity entrepreneurs. You won't want to miss our next episode, I guarantee it. Join the Simply Cyber Discord server at simplycyber.io slash discord to chat with the larger community and be made aware when we go live. We want all your questions answered. Until next time, I'm Jerry for Cyberstarters. Stay secure.